this season of Warm Regards, we're exploring stories about the unexpected side of data. From how we use it to make choices about a warming world, to what it means when you suddenly find that a graph has become your life. There are a lot of stereotypes that come to mind when you hear the word data. That it's all numbers, which it's not. That it represents the objective truth. Tackling that could be its own season. I asked my husband to tell me the first thing that came to mind when he heard the word. And the first thing he said was Star Trek, referencing, of course, the beloved character from The Next Generation. In the show, Data is a fully aware artificial intelligence, an android with a human-like body who, in the early seasons, has trouble understanding human emotions, often for comedic effect. What I love so much about Data the character is that it's his drive to have real emotional experiences that makes him so relatable. He serves as a sort of mirror to our own experiences. There are so many unwritten rules that we all assume everyone else knows, and that are often confusing, frustrating, or mysterious. I feel like anyone who has ever gone through adolescence can relate to this. It's not just the rules of adulthood that are challenging. It's all the experiences that we have to live through to learn them. You can't just download an update. Learning how to be a fully functioning adult human that process changes us. Which brings me back to climate change. In the climate conversation, we often talk about how we should just listen to experts or that the data are clear. Historically, in these representations, scientists are kind of depicted like androids, focused on the facts, not our emotional responses. We're supposed to be objective experts, relaying our findings to the public like a little kid depositing a collection of shells into your lap at the beach. And for a long time, that's what we were trained to do. It's what we were allowed to do. The message that I got as a young scientist was to just stick to the facts. We don't editorialize, we don't get emotional, especially if you're a woman, and we are not activists. Those were the rules. Thankfully, all of that has changed in the last few years. Or I should say, the scientists themselves haven't changed, but we finally have room to be complete human beings. We didn't get emotion chips installed like Data's creator gave him. We just finally have the breathing room to express our feelings publicly. We've always been inspired to pick up a beaker or learn to code because of things that we care about. The places we love, the people who matter to us. But so much of that was hidden behind the numbers. Being in the field, visiting the same places year after year, getting to know your study system intimately, it all changes you you grow attached. Think of the places that you come back to over and over. A childhood treehouse, a family cabin, or a familiar mountaintop. Our field sites are like that. In the novel Red Mars, Anne, a geologist, argues that if we are to be the consciousness of the universe, we should worship it with our attention. This attention, this relationship between us and the data that we gather about our planet can change us. Now imagine that the subject of your research is also changing. So many of us who work in the natural world are watching climate change unfold in our systems in real time. And it's changing who we are as scientists, as advocates, and as people.
Welcome to Warm Regards. I'm Ramesh Langani, a plant ecologist from Doan University in Nebraska. I'm Jacqueline Gill, an Ice Age ecologist and associate professor at the University of Maine. In our last episode, a part of the conversation that we didn't have time to unpack was that people experience climate change in a variety of ways. For some, it might be increasingly powerful and frequent extreme weather year after year. For others, like myself, I experience climate change through the data that I collect and read about in the scientific literature. But while certain pieces of data have had and continue to have a profound impact on my understanding of climate change, that data hasn't necessarily caused me to spin on my axis. It hasn't resulted in a gut punch. This is not to say that I don't have an emotional reaction to seeing the new data about climate change, but I often experience those emotions through the lens of my role as a scientist. What about you, Jacqueline? Have you ever had one of these climate change gut punches? You know, it's interesting. I haven't because as a scientist, I all of the climate change stories in, in my study system have already been told on some level, which isn't to say that we don't have to keep doing that research, but rather we know that we went from a cold ice age to a warm interglacial. Mm-hmm. The details here and there still need to be worked out and how all of the different you know, species we work with responded to that still needs to be sussed out. But fundamentally, there won't be a, a lot of surprises for me. The woolly mammoths are dead, right? right? I'm not going to go out into the into Siberia one day and discover that the organism that I've come to know intimately is fundamentally different than what I expected. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in my personal life, you know, I live in, you know, temperate northern latitudes, not in the Arctic. We experience some extreme events from time to time, but it's not a, a very wildfire prone place. It's not a place that's especially prone to catastrophic flooding. You know, we've had a, a couple of hurricanes. But, you know, other than that, I can't really say that there's been a moment where I've personally experienced climate change or climate data in a way that has just shaken my foundations or my understanding of myself, which isn't to say that it's not important, that it's not real, that it's not true. But I think it just... It just like underscores this idea that our experiences of climate change will be so highly personal and so highly variable and that they are affecting all of us across the planet at different rates in different ways. Yeah. You know, I work in a mitigation framework and and sort of like you, the details of how we're going to solve climate change, how we're going to get carbon from out of the atmosphere into a more stable place. That doesn't change. The details change, right? Whether, you know, if you're talking to me, it's going to be, I'm going to be yammering on about biochar. Uh, If you talk to other people, they'll be talking about other things. But the fundamental question is, there's too much carbon in the atmosphere. How do we get it out of the atmosphere? And so climate change is very much like a technical problem to me. And and like you, I live, you know, in Nebraska is known for some extremes, you know, it's highly variable temperatures and climate, but I'm not experiencing climate change in this really visceral way, right? My home has not been washed away by a rising sea. So I, like I said, I keep experiencing climate change through the data, which allows me to remain a bit separate from the emotions of climate change. Right. I mean, it's one thing to know because we can see all of the data in front of us and we can you know, hear the testimonies and, and listen to the experiences of the people we know. It's one thing to know that, that climate change is a problem. And it's, I think that's something that both you and I know in a very deep and profound way, but it's not necessarily a very personal way. We don't have, mm-hmm. you know, these personal climate stories where we can say, yes, this is a moment where 
climate change just walked up to me on the street and punched me in the stomach. When you had asked that question, the first person that I thought of, someone who I know has an incredibly profound climate story that changed them as a person, is our guest today. Dr. Kim Cobb. She's uh, based in Atlanta. She teaches at Georgia Tech. She is actually a paleoclimatologist by training and is the director of Georgia Tech's Global Change Program. She has this incredibly powerful story of having an unexpected, up-close and personal experience of climate change that changed her life in so many ways that in that moment, I don't think she fully understood until much later. The story really starts 20 years ago when I was a baby graduate student on my first expedition to the middle of the tropical Pacific. And I was there to look at El Nino events, which are a natural climate extreme that comes and goes and may be changing in response to anthropogenic climate change. And my whole career, 20 years thereafter, was really spent chasing down these events in coral archives. The coral records that we use to look at climate extremes are laid down by coral reefs you know, in, the, in the deep tropics. Every year, they lay down a layer of calcium carbonate, and that archive grows through time to be you know, sometimes a century or even several centuries long. We take a core down that time capsule, we bring it back to our lab at Georgia Tech, and we analyze it millimeter by millimeter and that turns out to generate a month-by-month -month record of past ocean temperatures. And that helps us place the current temperature extremes that are going on today into the context of past temperature extremes. And of course, that helps us understand where we're going with respect to the response of this particular system to greenhouse gases and climate change. And so I had been building this archive of corals for so long, and it came upon uh, 2014, when the climate community projections showed that we were expecting a fairly large El Nino event to materialize in the next year or so. And I pulled together um, a bunch of other folks to conduct a series of expeditions down to the equator where we were going to kind of chase this event in real time and collect tons and tons of data about the ocean temperatures and the ocean chemistry, how the corals were faring both chemically and um, with respect to their ecology and diversity and health, of course, as we expected that to be impacted. And so about three quarters of the way through this really exhausting series of expeditions chasing this event in real time, we're watching this from the seats at Georgia Tech, kind of watching this El Nino event ramp up to its peak. And we had long planned an expedition to the equator for that period of time. And so kind of got in the airplane and were so excited to go down and, and bear witness to this event as it reached its peak and try to capture all of the different things that were unusual about our research site during that very huge extreme. It really was, I thought of it as the opportunity of a lifetime. It was definitely my longstanding goal as a scientist to actually witness that and capture everything about it in as many data streams as I could. And so we got down there and indeed the water temperatures were extremely warm, but everything looked kind of the same. It was a little more rainy. 
Um, the villagers were experiencing some flooding. Sea levels were higher, which is all consistent. And the first expedition morning, we went out into the boat and we got all our scuba gear in there and we loaded up. Everything was normal. We did our safety checks and we went out to our first site and water was crystal blue. Everything looked a stunning day for diving, just like glassed off. Perfect. And we jumped in the water and looked down and what had happened over the previous 10 months of warming ocean waters, which were at that point about three degrees Celsius, almost six degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than usual, had really taken a toll on that reef. And what had been a steady march of kind of more visible coral bleaching, every expedition we went down there, at that point culminated in a mass mortality event. What we were looking at as we bobbed on the surface looking down was this blanket of red-brown algae covering the entire reef. There was no color. There was no shape left. Uh, it was just completely covered. And of course, you know, it was a is a gut punch in the sense that as a scientist, I know that that's the sign of a very recently dead reef and that um, I would have to spend the next <laughs> couple of weeks coming to grips with that, um, understanding its severity across the entire island and really trying to collect all the data that we could about the deep impacts that were underway. And of course, that was just the beginning of my own journey, reflecting on uh, where we were with climate change and, and you know how much we had squandered our opportunities to get in front of this train wreck and how for this particular site, um, it was too late. So that's, I mean, so I'm a plant ecologist, so I, I can't imagine what it would be like to do all that diving and see what you're seeing, but, but you described it as a gut punch. So what did that feel like? You know, you've been going out to this place for all these years and you have this sort of expectation and then that expectation is then fulfilled. What was that gut punch like? I mean, I think it was just a collision between my intellectual self as a scientist and, and having kept some aspects of my deepest fears quite far from me as a scientist. Mm -hmm. You're trained to be objective. And this place is so far away from my daily life. And so I get on the plane and I kind of transform into field scientist and I'm all in the moment and it overwhelms me while I'm in the field. And then I kind of tuck it away. And so, and I think when I was diving those first dives, it was really completely crashing down that wall between my heart and my mind and who I was, my identity, and this place that I had come to love so profoundly, I don't even know that I loved it fully until that moment. And mm -hmm. then to realize that I was part of the stewardship of this place as a human, as a scientist. And you know, what did that mean to me was a question that just kept on gaining steam in my head at that moment. It's interesting. So much of what you're you're describing sounds like the process of grief that we go through when we lose someone. This this idea of really appreciating what we have only when it's gone. And I'm I'm just wondering, what was the long tail process of that like for you? Thinking about what it's like to lose someone you love, or or a place, or a person, you know, anything that you love. Were there terms like climate grief at that time, or did you feel like you had a community of people who would understand what you were going through? Not really. I hadn't purposefully built that. I'm sure it was out there at the time. I was just, I think, kind of optimistic at that moment. And you have to kind of go back to where we were in 2016 when this happened to me and, and my entire group, by the way, and all the other groups that were reeling through this with us as collaborators. 
we were really hoping for a very different page to turn on our position with climate change as a country um, in the hopes of putting somebody in the White House who would really be a champion for this work. And I think when you're faced with such odds and, and such potential outcomes, we just kind of run to the optimistic side. And we think that, of course, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of always kind of okay, isn't it, maybe? And it really wasn't okay in 2016. Um, it wasn't okay for that reef. And then six months later, it wasn't okay for our country. And it wasn't okay for the climate system. And so I think there has been a collective awakening since then, Jacqueline, about what we all have to come to grips with. But at the time, I did feel somewhat isolated as a climate scientist, kind of having to wake up to this whole pile of facts called, it's way too little, it's way too late. I have not been playing enough of a role in fixing this. And I've been placing way too many eggs in that basket called, you know, Washington, D.C. and federal policy that what if it never comes to be? Then what? Yeah, it's I mean, I remember I was then still an early career scientist in 2016 and sort of mid midway on the process to getting tenure. And I remember feeling all these existential emotions about what was even the point of what I'm doing. Right. Like when we have people in office who don't even believe that the work that we do is real, um, how, you know, what does it mean to be meaningful at that time? And I know for me, at least, it was it was really depressing. I was really depressed for a very long time. And it took me a long time to kind of find some sense of agency through those feelings of, of loss and grief. So I'd love to hear from you, and I think a lot of our listeners would too, what made you not give up? What was it that helped carry you through and we'll, we'll ask you about some of these changes, but you, you know, you, you, I think you came through that process almost a different person in a lot of ways. So what, what helped you through that process? I mean, I, I share all of what you said is what I went through in terms of, you know, pretty significant bout with depression, um, really finding it hard to add up my professional role as a climate scientist anymore. All of that was kind of late 2016. It, it was a kind of dark blur, frankly. And and this was, you know, I was out in the field when uh, the election took place. And so I kind of missed the national mourning, the acute phase, I think, and had to go through it myself some weeks later, you know, having been steeled to the task of keeping my research team safe out in, at the site during the election itself. And so I think after that, I was just kind of spinning um, in the dark and I was just, you know, grasping at straws, basically. And I had no idea how it would all work out and how I could get out of the bed in the morning and go to work every day and find meaning and purpose. And it was really, you know, I think New Year's Day 2017 when I got up and I said, well, you know, today is as good as day as any to try something new. (laughs) Um, It's the birthday of my identical twins, and I really don't want to spend it in bed. I don't want to just sit here and sob and wonder what could have been um, and all those lost years. I don't want to do that. And so I got up and I got on Twitter and I made a climate resolution that I was going to walk my kids to school twice a week and bike to work twice a week. And I had no idea at the time, I would be lying if I said so, that that would be the first step on a path that would end up to bring new meaning and new purpose 
So beyond that first tweet where you committed to those two changes in your life, walking your kids to school and riding your bike to work, what other things helped you come out of that post-election depression? I think that what happened in early 2017 was I started to gain some kind of personal momentum and some spark of joy in my life for turning over this new puzzle in my hands, climate solutions, like, ooh, this is kind of fun and it's complex and it's nubbly and it has a lot to explore. And I don't know anything about this. <laughs> I know kind of textbooks and Twitter posts, but I really don't know what it means to me. And as you guys are interested in data, I always have been obsessed with data. You know, we always talk about data-based policies, leveraging data in decision-making, and, and of course, permeating all of our work collectively as scientists. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so what I started was a spreadsheet. Um, right. well, no, I mean, what would we do <laughs> without, without a spreadsheet, right? I mean... <laughs> it was How do other people make decisions? <laughs> really crappy spreadsheet you might like pull up for like some back of the envelope quick thing you want to explore um, and it never has evolved since really <laughs> it's still a crappy spreadsheet but you know it does contain all of the inventory of my direct emissions oh wow to me it was important that I reflect for myself what I call on policymakers to do collectively we know what policymakers need to do to meet the targets of the 1.5 degrees Celsius ideal warming level put forward by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. We know what that path looks like. What does my path look like? What does my data look like? I had mm -hmm, no idea, mm -hmm. frankly, and that, that didn't fit well. And so I started inventorying the gas I was putting in my car. I started inventorying the flights I was taking, I started inventorying the bills as they were coming in for electricity and natural gas. And I had this, you know, really exhaustive now multi-year crappy spreadsheet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm happy to send that to any anybody, by the way, anybody wants to check that out, I can send it to you and you can puzzle through crappy spreadsheet too. But that's where it started. And I started that in early 2017 uh, when I kind of thought, well, you know, let's look at the data, right? Let's see what they say. Right. Yeah. And there's been some aspects of my path that have been guided by that data. Most notably, the flying piece of that puzzle became uh, became obvious. That was very, very large. And to me, it started to look like a, an important piece to tackle and to turn over. And it's very wildly complex. It's rich. It's intricate. It's nuanced. Um, and I'm, I gravitate to it for those reasons as much as I do for the large carbon footprint that was revealed on my spreadsheet. But there are many other things I was, I was driven to do as well, crank down my energy demand in my house. And I, I had, you know, I got a little game going with myself, right? You start to play these games when you have the data. And you, if you have a goal, then it becomes fun to see the changes play out in the data month by month by month. And it's, it became kind of an obsession. And so that's another thing that I did in 2017, which turned out to be important in some ways from an individual perspective as somebody who's obsessed with data. But there were many, many things I did in 2017 that were not at that scale, that were focused squarely on thinking about the collective scale and my responsibility to speak up whenever I could in defense of science, which was and is under attack from uh, partisan-fueled uh, ideological spheres mostly, 
And I also got involved with my neighborhood and my city governance mechanisms around what we could do at that scale to begin to shift cultural norms and advocate for certain policies. So I kind of had these experiments going at the individual level, at the kind of neighborhood city level, and an experiment engaging at the larger scale as well, federally. that's kind of coming to me as we have this conversation is, you know, in the climate conversation, at least on Twitter and and, in some other spheres, there's often this tension between whether personal actions matter or whether we need sort of top down changes at the large scale, big sweeping structural change versus our sort of individual responsibility. And there's so many things we could talk about in terms of that narrative and and how that's in a lot of ways just a very American sort of like rugged individualism versus the collective. And what's interesting to me is that I feel like you and your story are embodying how the data have led you to make these kinds of changes at multiple scales. And you hinted at that a little bit, but I'm wondering if you could talk about that from the perspective of, you know, so many people want to know that what they do matters. And so how have you found a way through by looking at your own emissions, by looking at sort of the collective pathways that we all need to take to get to where we need to go? Where do you fall in terms of the the importance of personal action versus collective or institutional action? Well, I really don't draw any boundaries. I don't make any uh, judgments or even assessments <laughs> that uh, that would make your question easily answerable, Jacqueline, um, because to me, it's just a blurry continuum. And that would like imply a linear space, mm-hmm. which I don't think mm-hmm. it is either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually think it's just this like big overlapping circles and spheres that mash up together. And I try to recognize that everybody has a role to play that is unique to them and what matters to them is going to be different than what matters to me. And what they see and what they gain energy from and what they're empowered by is going to be unique to them. And so what I'm trying to do in this space is is make room for however people would like to engage and champion what matters to them if it matters to them and not tear down the ways that they choose to engage. And one of the most profound lessons that I think I can bring, that I hope to bring when I speak with the public, for example, is the idea that where you start is not where you end. The most important thing to do is start and lift each other up and walk the path together. And then we'll look at the other person's path and say, that's an awesome, fun path. I'm going to you know, walk on that path with you for a bit. I'm going to do it a little differently. And, and, and that's okay. And that's such a critical thing. It's not one and done. You don't get to check a box. None of us get to check a box and say, well, I did my climate solution of the day. No way. This is a long haul structural slog. And the most important thing is that taking that first step and setting the intention to be part of that path for the rest of your life. So it sounds like there's this false binary of 
you know, because I often see like, oh, you know, nothing we do matters and, unless we have new people in office or, you know, nothing we do as individual matters. It's all the, the big oil executives. But it sounds like that's really a false binary. I, I think often people get caught up in that false binary and they feel disempowered. And I think it sounds like for you that just kind of chucking that whole framework of thinking out the window opens up a lot of space for people to think about all the ways in which we can be impactful in ways that are meaningful for us and and accessible for us. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I didn't invent this philosophy and then live it. I found it (laughs) by doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's something that came to me when I realized kind of with shock, frankly, that walking my kids to school was such a gift such a profound gift. I could not imagine I'd spent 14 years in the car previously and driving to work the same. What a gift it was to bike. I knew I'd never go back and I became a daily walker and a daily biker and an all weather biker. And I thought, oh my God, all those things that looked like sacrifice before. And I think I'm doing this for the carbon, but I'm not, I'm doing this for me. And what else is out there that I've been missing out on? (laughs) What the heck? (laughs) And so questioning all these assumptions that we take for granted, because of course you drive to work. Of course you spend 15 minutes of your life idling in a queue of 100 cars on the way to drop your kid off a mile from your home. This is how we've come to live. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it's quite beautiful when you invent a different way. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing to hear how this sort of discovery, because right, as scientists, we love discovering unexpected things, right? Right. And we love seeing, you know, unexpected things in our data. So, you know, I'm curious to know how, you know, to go back to the point you were saying about how important it is to start, it sounded like, or it sounds like from what you're describing, that the data caused you to start. Did the data help you turn those things into habits? Or was it, did it just immediately, as soon as you started walking your kids to school, you were like, oh, yeah, forget the carbon. This is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's 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 both. I mean, I'd be lying if I said the carbon didn't matter, but it's actually quite a bit bigger than that now. So, I mean, carbon literacy is something I'm quite obsessed with, obviously, especially with all my spreadsheeting and all of my uh teaching as well, right? So, I taught a course for 10 years at Georgia Tech where I conduct a project called the Carbon Reduction Challenge. And it's basically a competition that at its root will drive carbon literacy home to you for the rest of your life in ways you'll never forget. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> come for the friendly competition with your teammates, but stay for the carbon literacy. And so as I kind of boned up through my own data, I'm ever looking for ways to kind of drive that number down in an effort to align myself with my goal of reducing my own consumption of carbon. But at the same time, what has been, again, this amazing feedback loop is to recognize that when I moved to talk to my husband about solar panels, right, through like a new mm-hmm. of conversations, because he's not a carbon obsessive, even though he's a climate scientist, you know, he, through a series of conversations, kind of talking about costs and benefits, as we move to get those panels and sharing that conversation with my broader peer group, with my students, with Twitter, other people were like, hey, that could be me. Like that conversation could sound pretty yeah. familiar. And all of a sudden there are these kind of ripple effects and these network effects that start 
kind of resonating pretty strongly. And again, that was not my goal in starting to talk about solar panels with my husband, but lo and behold, here I am. And five of my friends have gotten solar panels last year. So I'm not an evangelist for solar panels by any means, but yet people are interested in how they can be part of this. And that brings me to my last point. You know, I actually have carbon patients. Like I'm actually a carbon therapist. I should really get paid for that. Like business cards, that? business cards. That's what you need. <laughs> I, I really need to print some cards. That would nice. be a great next step for my small business. But, you know, I have these carbon patients and they write to me uh, and they say, you know, Kim, you've crunched all these numbers. You're a scientist and you know carbon, you know how it seeps into my life. So can you help me reduce my carbon footprint? And I say, you know, sure, let's, let's have some conversations, right? And so we look at some of their data and we start to think about what would be impactful in their life, what would be meaningful for them? What do they care about? How does that overlap on some of the knobs they have access to? And so this quickly becomes a way of engagement at a sphere that is like not individual, not family, but like, I don't know, like neighborhoody or, you know, near networky right. that not be discounted. I think it's really important. I think the data will continue to show that that is a lever for change that most people don't think about when they think about individual action and mm. that it spans the individual collective space in really interesting and quick ways. Yeah, so it's it's sort of not even so much peer pressure as it is just empowerment that people see, oh, that this is something that was accessible to Kim and maybe it's accessible to me. Um, it's sort of norm normalizing these kinds of behaviors. Um, it doesn't have to be about shaming. It can actually just be about celebrating and empowering. Yeah, I really like that. This is Justin Shell, the producer for Warm Regards. As part of this season on climate data, we're featuring data stories that come from you, our listeners. Today's story comes from Dr. Nicole Miller-Strutman, who works with data from flowers and bees in order to better understand the effects of climate change. I am Nicole Miller-Strutman, and I am an evolutionary ecologist. I study plant-pollinator interactions. A lot of times I am working with bees these days, so learning about their behavior and learning about how their traits evolved through their interactions with plants. I use all kinds of data. I use data that was collected by scientists 50 years ago um, for other purposes that had nothing to do with climate change and nothing to do with the effects of climate change on plant-pollinator interactions, but it's through those historical data that we're able to test how long-term changes in climate influence plant-pollinator interactions and their evolution. I also use data that we collect now, of course, that we can compare back to those historical data. And that includes collecting plants and pressing them or collecting bumblebees and releasing them. And then for either of those, we might take measurements on them. So uh, a really important trait for plant pollinator interactions is body size and also tongue length. And so we measure those traits in our bees, body size and tongue length. We also have to use climate data, data that is collected in order to track our weather and our climate on a regular basis in order to make connections between our bees, the behaviors that they're exhibiting, the plants that they're visiting, and the climate, um, particularly long-term changes in those relationships. 
A ton of additional data that I'm not even talking about. We, we use a lot of data to try to understand, and different kinds of data, to try to understand how these large-scale climatic changes are influencing interactions. In my career, I have looked at changes in flowering time in plants in response to either warming or potentially restoration. We simply go out and we observe whether or not a plant is flowering and we count how many flowers. And then we can test whether or not the climate is influencing that flowering, either the timing or the number of flowers. And one of the things that we have found is that when we see lower abundances of flowers, so there's just fewer flowers out there, bees have to visit flowers that in the past they never visited. So these are flower species that were there, but these bees didn't prefer to visit them, and so they never did. And now what we're seeing is they're much more generalized. They're visiting whatever flowers they possibly can, and that has led to a change in selection and actually evolution in this species, where we are seeing fewer bees that have long tongues. Climate, by driving changes in the plants, has actually influenced the bumblebees that visit them. This has really important implications for how good of a pollinator that bee is for the plants. These relationships are incredibly important for the long-term viability of the plants as well as our pollination systems. Want to share your data story with us? We'd love to hear it. You can leave us a 90-second voicemail by calling 586-930-5286 or record yourself and email it to us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. Make sure to say who you are and where you're from. We'll be featuring these stories throughout the season. So this makes me think, has anything kind of come out that you didn't expect from this process? Well, definitely when I added up the carbon of biking to work, it's about 900 pounds per year. Wow. <laughs> that, that sound like a lot to you all? That, no, that's Does a that big number. Like really? I think so. Okay. So when I run one cohort of 30 students over the course of 10 weeks this summer for the carbon reduction challenge that I'm conducting right now, they're probably going to be avoiding the emissions of about 10 million pounds of carbon dioxide through wow. their work. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. So like these are projects your students are coming up with that are having a cumulative impact of millions of tens of millions of pounds of carbon. That's correct. So wow. those are some data that kind of smack me upside the head every once in a while and remind me about where the opportunities really are wow. and you know how my biking to work is really frankly no longer for the carbon i can't pretend right. that it is yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. speaking of data yeah. so you know those are some numbers that uh, i try to share with my students at the top of these cohorts of undergraduates and I promise them that they really are changing the world and that my biking to the work really isn't. <laughs> we all have a good chuckle. Can I ask what, as a follow-up, like what, what's their secret? What are the sorts of things yeah. that they're coming up with that are, you know, cause I'm always interested in this question too, because often what people think is important 
and what is actually important are very, very separate. And there are, there are often these sort of hidden pools of carbon or hidden activities that, you know, we engage in versus the ones that have these like high optics values, right? Like, like the biking to work, right? right? And so often people will check the box and then think, okay, I'm set. But yeah, like what are these solutions your students are coming up with? And where are they finding these hidden pools of carbon that, that we can stop emitting? Oh my God, everywhere. Well, you know, this is especially true in the southeastern US, and we are fairly wasteful with energy down here um, because energy has historically been pretty inexpensive compared to other mm -hmm. places. And of course, we haven't had the benefit of some of the policymaking that has gone on, particularly in the Northeast and California, around energy efficiency. And so the kind of projects that the students are finding are really large scale energy efficiency projects. And, you know, Jacqueline, you talk about like, where is all this carbon hiding in plain sight? Well, there's a lot of money where that comes from, too, <laughs> hiding in plain sight. And that's the trick. And so these students are working in partnership with usually fairly large organizations, and they are developing, refining, and basically ultimately implementing wherever they can pretty large scale energy efficiency projects that are trimming the carbon budgets of these very large organizations and saving them money. And so I try to tell the students that the visual that I have for what they're trying to do is they're trying to find a really, really big knob and they're trying to change it just a fraction of an inch, a little lower. And that turns out to be huge in many cases. So there's an example I'll share um, from one of our previous winners from SunTrust, and they were uh, looking into the car rentals, which are very large number of car rentals for a big organization like that per year. And they realized that the software that was written in, I don't know, like probably the 1990s had a default of intermediate size car rental, and they proposed to change it to economy size. And they did some surveys to understand, you know, how many people would opt back into intermediate versus be quite happy with the economy size. And so they proposed to the CEO to make this change. It was saving the company tens of thousands of dollars a year, of mm -hmm. course, as well. And it was done the same day, like one line of code wow. <laughs> in a software package for a corporation like that. Um, and it was done. And so that's the kind of thing that is just so pervasive across these large organizations. And, you know, we can't accept our own universities from this. We, we know from walking around our institutions that they're incredibly wasteful and that we don't really, not quite mindful about how we use energy and what we could be doing better. And so, of course, you know, I would call the universities in the room as an important partner in this. And in fact, Georgia Tech has been partnering for the winning team about, you know, a third of the time uh, a student works at Georgia Tech to, to win the challenge. That's awesome. Wow. I remember hearing, sort of first being aware of this work of yours when you were talking about just how much energy a single fume hood in a lab can emit by not lowering the sash. And yes. um, which is like way more like, so the, the fume hood in my lab that we use, not even every week of the year, I can have a bigger impact on, I guess, if you could call it my personal budget by lowering that sash than like any other personal choices that I could make combined. Oh, yes. That's the ridiculous thing about this is that we are, we move through institutions, we move through large groups of people at our workplace or kids' schools, um, even at our churches or synagogues or mosques, et cetera, 
um, where we interact with energy systems in a way mm -hmm. that we don't question <laughs> and we actually know nothing about. And so we hold ourselves kind of personally accountable to be mindful of these things. But really, we are missing some levers that are at our fingertips that are much, much bigger. Yeah. And, and again, I don't I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying, oh, it doesn't matter. We should we should all have beef cheeseburgers every single day and dry, you know, go get them in our Hummers. But it's more that uh, I think this idea of cultivating carbon literacy, as you've talked about, is really powerful because when we have the sense of urgency and people often get really caught up in this anxiety over what it takes to um, for political change or, or personal collective change, sort of large scale social change, when we may have so much low hanging carbon fruit to pick and just like these knobs mm -hmm. that you've talked about, you know, I feel like we're all running around. We're like we're like ants running around trying to to move a lot of these levers when there are some really big levers that you've identified just even in this conversation. I just think it's a really powerful way of having some some actual data about where these emissions come from means that we could probably make more traction more quickly than we even realize. And we have more power to do that than is apparent to us. And, and that to me is incredibly inspiring. Like I feel very jazzed just by this conversation. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm so glad about that because, of course, you know, my my ultimate goal is to try to really help people understand um, where some of this carbon lies, but also excite them to think about, well, how could I engage for change in ways that would give me more energy back than I put in? And so, you know, for me, it's about the students that's a huge one for me. And when I get to look out over the cohort of students that have participated in the summer challenge, you know, and they're all jazzed up and no matter where they came from as majors or years across campus um, or what kind of corporation or company or single chair barbershop they interned for that summer, you know, they're changed for life. That, that's it for them. They'll never forget the carbon literacy that they gained through the process. They'll never forget what it felt like to be an agent for change, to champion innovation around sustainability, to make a business case to the C-suite for a change that is so glaringly obvious that they championed. They'll never forget that. And, you know, I am grateful for all of their passion and purpose. And I'm also so, I feel so privileged to be along for that ride. And to me, you know, that's what it means to, to be a professor at the end of the day. So when I get to have this like carbon mashup and this partnerships and these bright young people going out in the world, I'm just all fired up. So Kim, I really like the analogy of knobs because I think oftentimes in the conversation, and I'm curious what your experience has been with students. So I teach at a small undergraduate institution. And oftentimes when in conversations around climate change and climate solutions, Students, no pun intended here, think of things like a light switch, right? I either stop doing it, right? I either turn the light switch off completely or it's on. There's no in between. And so I'm wondering, like, what has that been like for your students to see and get access to knobs and realize that they can just turn things down a little bit and the impact that that's having? And just the idea of what have you seen with your students around, oh, I do have access to these knobs. What has that been like for you? Well, you know, to me, they have taught me what's achievable. They have taught me. So it's my job to take the new cohort that we get and they look at me like, you are crazy lady if you think I'm going to achieve the things you're talking about. And, you know, I, I say, okay, you know, I promise you, you actually will. 
the landscape is ripe for your success. You have what it takes. You have the support of your teammates as well. And you have these faculty mentors who are going to you know, walk you down this process. But really what is most empowering about this process, watching them, is just the richness of the initial ideas that they come to the table mm-hmm. with. So I charge them to go brainstorm. I say, you know, open your eyes, look around. You can see wasteful practices and processes all around you. Bring a couple back. Let's talk right. about them. Um, and then we'll pick the one that we think is going to be, you know, go the distance maybe with some support and help. And the things they come back with are just like, oh, you're seriously like the most creative thing. I could never have come up with that. And you're absolutely right. And I'd love to dig into that problem with you and support your calculations and and help you make your pitch because this is a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) love to hear a little bit about what the reaction has been like from within the scientific community as your career and your work and your engagement and advocacy have evolved over time. I'm particularly thinking of, for example, an award was rescinded because of your choice not to receive it in person. Can you tell us a little bit about that or any other kinds of reactions that you've gotten from the community? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the personal sphere. We've spoken about the carbon reduction challenge and kind of the student facing work. What we haven't really talked about is the professional pivot into climate solutions that I've been undertaking since 2016 as well. And there is a lot of attention that people pay to flying less. And I would say like half of my media engagement is about flying less. People are just obsessed with flying and especially with like my flying choices. (laughs) You know, and I've loved that we haven't actually talked about that in in this conversation so far. Because, you know, I hope it helps your listeners understand that the flying piece is a very small part of this mm-hmm. puzzle. And it tends to be the one that people gravitate towards because it's like people think it's crazy or it's obviously controversial. But yes, it's something that I've come to find deeply rewarding for me. And I also think it challenges structural and social norms in important ways. Um, But yes, there was some tension last year, earlier this year, I guess, when there was a plenary that was rescinded because I wouldn't go do that plenary in person. I was going to offer to appear remotely and to, you know, do a lot of other remote and virtual awesome things in support of my presence there at the meeting, but alas, it didn't work out. And so some lectures and some plenaries and some very fancy things have been rescinded because I chose not to be there in person as part of my uh, new new life, part of my new norms for myself. Um, and that that is very disappointing, but there are some really powerful accelerators that are in place right now to help individuals and institutions and professional societies move into alignment towards our low carbon future. How do we mindfully build something different to support Uh, the operation and and all the fun and value of science when we're not flying 150,000 miles a year per person. So you you talked about this sort of negative reaction with this award being rescinded. Have you seen your habits 
spreading? Have you seen positive uh, and received support from your colleagues who said, yeah, you know what? I live five houses down from Kim. I can walk a mile .01 more with my kids to school as well. You know, um, have you seen that sort of support? Well, there definitely are some people who are biking who never would have started biking had I not started biking and expressed so much joy about it and can't shut up about it because I'm like, I'm like that biker. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just, I just love it, right? You talk about things right, you love. Right, yeah. That's why. But there are some changes that have kind of rippled out into that next sphere across all of the things that I've done, including flying less. And, you know, I talk about that on Twitter. I try not to talk about it too much on Twitter, even though it is something I love and value about, you know, my own personal choices. I, I really find it incredibly enjoyable to stay on the ground. But I've noticed on Twitter that it's kind of the younger generation of scientists is kind of like, oh, curious. And, oh, that's kind of neat. And I wonder if I could ever do that and like have a viable career. Wouldn't that be kind of neat? Right. Um, <laughs> although I, I, FYI, like I can't right now, Kim, um, which is absolutely the case. And then there are some people who are, I would say, very caustic about that particular piece. It's like the third rail. They view it as damaging to the movement and even, you know, talking about my biking passions as damaging. And so, you know, without recognizing the spectrum and the complexity of what we have unpacked today um, and the, the ways in which I don't view these things as, you know, a binary choice, the way I see them reinforcing each other, all of those things are lost, unfortunately, to the wolves on Twitter often. Yeah, it, it's been kind of fraught in those very specific and narrow ways. But I have to say, in the most general way, it's been wonderful to see an entire global community of people dedicated to climate solutions kind of be built from the ground up, frankly, in desperation. And as we move to be more inclusive of each other's approaches, as we move away from the caustic rhetoric of it's my way or mm -hmm. the highway, and the checkboxes of this is how you be an effective climate solver, we will actually be more and more successful, which is something I feel growing as our desperation increases. <laughs> So I, I think, you know, we just have a few minutes left, but what I would love to hear a little bit about is, you know, you have this incredibly powerful personal story of your journey through data as a scientist who collected that data in the field and then had this up close and personal experience of seeing the impacts of your research affect your study system in real time, and then how that motivated you to all kinds of changes um, and empowered you to make changes and, and a pivot in your own career and in your life. So I, I actually have a couple of questions for you just to sort of wrap up. The first is, you know, how do you as an instructor, as an advocate, you know, you must also hear from people with a lot of anxiety and, and that, who want to help. I know I certainly do, and I don't do a fraction of, of what you do. So how do you counsel or lead students or younger scientists or activists through dealing with their own feeling of being stuck? Like, how do you help guide them out of that despair and into action? Well, you know, I guess I, I first just reflect on what I've talked about today, and I hope I've hammered home, which is the way that I got out of my climate funk uh, may look very different than your path. But here are some things that really, really, really helped me. And what I realized was staying in a corner, uh, paralyzed by inaction, overwhelmed, angry, despairing, frustrated, 
is the worst place to be. And so again, kind of outlining for yourself, this is a, a lifelong path. It's a process and I don't know where I'm going yet, <laughs> but I know the direction I'm pointed in and here's a step I'm going to take. And then know that as you go, you're the one who gets the data back. What does the data look like? The data looks like, gee, I found that really meaningful. I found some community right. there that really helps me keep going. I gained more energy from that thing than I put in. That's the data that helps you understand you're on the right path. And those are the meaningful things you can grow. So that's kind of what I talk to people about. And I try to help unpack my own journey in that light and help them understand just how many touch points there are. And there, I mean, goodness, I mean, it, when I give a public talk, I probably outline 20 or 30 just in unpacking my story. But hopefully there's something there that sparks somebody to say, I don't want to be stuck here anymore. And then just finally, as a scientist who, who made a pivot from generating earth science data to thinking about what we do with that information and how do we get to where we need to be, what do you think is the role of data going into the future? Are we done collecting data? Do we know what we need to know about the earth system? Um, what role does data have to play in the climate crisis going forward? Ooh, <laughs> this is really an answer for our times, I suppose, and it's kind of where we are. But maybe we've been paying attention to the wrong sorts of data. And the data that I'm really interested in right now in my own work are the data that help me understand the depths of the crisis around climate justice, around racial justice, around structural inequities in my own backyards in Atlanta and, of course, across the globe. Those are the data that I think are going to have to drive us into the new frontiers of climate research, frankly. And it is those data that are now keeping me up at night, <laughs> you know, even more so than the data about the ongoing bleaching mm -hmm. crisis across the Great Barrier Reef. These data have been there forever. Um, they haven't moved very much in the right direction. And if we don't start paying attention to them and building research around them to solve those challenges, I think we're going to be in a, in a horrible place um, going forward with, with climate change in general. That's really, uh, that's incredibly powerful. And I know I've been really motivated. I just want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us today. I'm, I really appreciate hearing your story and I feel really inspired by just you and your actions. Thank you guys so much. And I'm so inspired by you having such an incredible spate of guests on. It's a profound honor to be sharing my story with you today. Well, thanks for being a part thanks of Thanks so it. much, Kim. Warm Regards is produced by Justin Schell. Joe Stormer creates our transcripts, and Catherine Pinehart is our social media maven. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find a transcript of this episode, listen to previous episodes, and find links to subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice on our brand new website, warmregardspodcast.com. Also, something that really helps more people learn about our show is if you leave a quick review or rating, especially on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think about the new season. You can reach us at OurWarmRegards at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at OurWarmRegards. This season of Warm Regards is made possible by our patrons on Patreon, including Ariel Fournier, 
and Nicholas Cortez Penfield. Their donations help pay our great team members Justin, Joe, and Catherine for all of their hard work. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash warmregards. There are also links to the page in our show notes and on our website. From all of us at Warm Regards, thanks for letting us into your head. Thank you.